Jerry Sitzer in his book, A Grace Disguised, a fascinating book. He said, in the fall of 1991, Linda was teaching a unit of homeschool to our two oldest children, Catherine and David, on Native American culture. She decided to complete the unit by st- of study by attending a powwow of a Native American reservation in rural Idaho. So we piled our four children into the minivan on Friday afternoon to drive to the reservation, where we planned to have dinner with the tribe and witness our first powwow. My mother, Grace, who had come to visit for us for the weekend, decided to join us on the excursion. At dinner, we talked with the tribal leaders about their projects and problems, especially the abuse of alcohol, which undermined so much of what they were trying to accomplish. After dinner, we strolled to a small gymnasium where the powwow had already begun. Once again, we sat with several tribal leaders, and they explained the dances that tribal members were performing and the traditional dress the dancers were wearing. After about an hour of watching the powwow, several children from the tribe approached us and invited our two daughters, Catherine and Diana Jane, to join them in the dance. The boys decided to explore the gymnasium for a while. By 8.15 p.m., however, the children had had enough. So we returned to our van, loaded and buckled up, and left for home. By then, it was dark. Ten minutes into our trip home, I noticed an oncoming car on a lonely stretch of highway, driving extremely fast. I slowed down at a curve, but the other driver did not. It jumped its lane and smashed head-on into our minivan. I learned later that the alleged driver was Native American, drunk, driving 85 miles per hour. He was accompanied by his pregnant wife, also drunk, who was killed in the accident. I remember those first moments after the accident as if everything was happening in slow motion. They're frozen into my memory with a terrible vividness. After recovering my breath, I turned around to survey the damage. The scene was chaotic. I remember the look of terror on the faces of my children and the feeling of horror that swept over me when I saw the unconscious and broken bodies of Linda, my four-year-old daughter Diana Jane, and my mother. I remember getting Catherine, then eight, David, seven, and John, two, out of the van through my door, the only one that would open. I remember taking pulses, doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying and calm the living. I remember the feeling of panic that struck my soul as I watched Linda, my mother, and Diana Jane all die before my eyes. I remember the pandemonium that followed, people gawking, lights flashing from emergency vehicles, a helicopter whirling overhead, cars lining up, medical reports doing what they, doing what they could to help, medical experts. And I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge, in, plunge into a darkness from which I might never emerge again as a sane, normal, believing man. In the hours that followed the accident, the initial shock gave way to an unspeakable agony. I felt dizzy with grief's vertigo, cut off from family and friends, tormented by the lost, nauseous from the pain. After arriving at the hospital, I paced the floor like a caged animal only recently captured. I was so bewildered that I was unable to voice questions or think rationally. I felt wild with fear and agitation, as if I was being stalked by some deranged killer from whom I could not escape. I could not stop crying. I could not silence the deafening noise of crunching metal and screaming sirens and wailing children. I could not rid my eyes the vision of violence, of shattering glass and shattered bodies. All I wanted was to be dead. Only the sense of responsibility for my three surviving children and the habit of living for 40 years kept me alive. That torrent of emotion swept away the life I had cherished for so many years. In one moment, my family as I had known and cherished it was obliterated. The woman to whom I had been married for two decades was dead. 
My beloved Diana Jane, our thirdborn, was dead. My mother, who had given birth to me and raised me, was dead. Three generations, gone in an instant. That initial deluge of loss slowly gave way over the next months to the steady seepage of pain that comes when grief, like floodwaters refusing to subside, finds every crack and crevice of the human spirit to enter and erode. I thought that I was going to lose my mind. I was overwhelmed with depression. The foundation of my life was close to caving in. If you have uh, experienced extreme hurt, extreme pain, uh, Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised, is a good book for you. Catastrophe on that level does not come every day. We're grateful for that. But suffering on one level or another does. We do not know a day. We do not know what life would be like without such, whether it's ourselves or our immediate family or extended family or our friends. There's people dealing with health issues constantly or depression or injustice or chronic troubles. It's just suffering is part of life. Job says, he's going to say, Job 5, 7, as surely as sparks fly upward, so man is born for adversity. And I've talked to enough of y'all. If we put 10 of us who've lived any amount of time in a room and we were to share unfiltered and raw everything, we would not lack for stories to be told. We might lack for Kleenex, we might lack for time, but the hurt and pain is, is uh, monumental. Swindoll used to say uh, that if you preach to a hurting crowd, you will always have an audience. Because suffering is, Job's story is our story. As I've noticed Christendom, though, it seems that we struggle sometimes to do suffering well. It's such a key part of life, and it's not going away. I think if we could take a vote, we would all vote, let's just do away with suffering, it's done. But it's not that easy. It's going to be a part of who we are. How do we handle it when it comes knocking on the door? Now, let me ask you another question. As a Christian, a Christ follower, what would you say is the primary purpose for your life? To raise a family, secure the future, benefit people. Maybe it's simpler than that. Maybe it's to bring God glory. purpose of my life is to bring God glory. Now, I'm not trying to build a straw man here. I think that's biblical. But if that's so, I don't think there's a place we can bring him glory better than in the midst of suffering. Our worship is best when life is at its worst. I think that that's very true. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me. Job chapter 1. We're going through our study on Job, and we're still in Job 1. We'll just dig right in. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Last week we mentioned that this was the oldest book, most probably in the Bible. First one written. First book that God inspired was for you and I to deal with the major obstacle in our faith with him. Chapter 1, verse 6. It says, one day, by the way, this is a very unique portion of Scripture. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of times the veil is kind of pulled back and we're able to look into the throne room of God and, and see what's going on in the heavenlies. Uh, on occasion, and certainly here. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan uh, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Um, I think this is fascinating. Um, first of all, Satan, it's, it's, and there's an article here, so it's always the Satan, Hasatan. And the word is, is just adversary. The adversary came. Now, this is not God's adversary. God does not have any adversaries. It's like an adversary would be one who could cause them damage or harm. Satan can't do that to God. He's our adversary. Uh, he causes us that. But the, the adversary came. And you've got to love God's response. God is going to look for the, the thing that brings him the most glory. It's not the stars. It's not the galaxies. And, of course, the heavens declare the glory of God, but not, not like this one thing. It, it's, it's not the microbes. It's not the northern lights. It's an individual person who lives their life totally for him. And so God is twice as Satan. You know, have you seen Job? Job, Job has never seen me. I've never spoken to him. I haven't given him any major miracles. He doesn't have a church to encourage him. And yet, Job lives his life by faith in me. I can create all this other stuff, piece. That's not an issue. But I don't force anyone to love me. And so have you, have you seen Job? Brings, I think I like this because we can, you can, bring God more glory in the heavenlies ever than stars or the Grand Canyon or great sunsets can. You can bring him more glory than anything else, and you do so by living your life accordingly. And so God says this to Satan. Well, Satan responds, Does does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he'll surely curse you, curse you to your face. Satan says, hey, God, God, does this surprise you? I mean, the Job is, I mean, you think Job is serving you because he loves you? <laughs> not at all. He's not a stupid man. He realizes that if he does this, you're going to do this. And you've protected everything he's got. Nothing bad can get to it. Not only that, everything this man touches is increased 50%, you know, return. He's not a stupid guy. He's just playing the game. He's just playing your process. You've set this system up that if you do good, you bless him. Well, he's just playing the game at heart. He's greedy and selfish. They all are. Job is not loving you. Job's loving himself. Take away everything he has, and then you'll see what I'm talking about. And so the Lord responds. This is very well. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, we met those guys last week, there's ten of them there. They're all kind of hanging out, close family. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword... And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, 
Yet another messenger came. It keeps getting worse, right? Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept them from the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, you can't miss what's what's going going on here. Satan put the question of the book of Job on the table. The question is not, where's God when suffering happens? The question is not, why does God allow suffering? The question is not, why do good people suffer? Satan put the question on the table that the whole book is going to try to answer. And the question is not, oh, why do I suffer when I serve God? This is the question. Why do I serve God, though I might suffer? The question that the book seeks to answer for Job that you have to answer for you, that I need to answer for me. The question that Satan, if he was, would pose our name, I don't know if he ever would, but if he'd pose our name to God, would say, why really does Harris serve you, God? Why really? That's, that's the question he's getting at, because Satan knows this. He knows something most of us forget. He knows that, that we worship God best when life is worse, that we, or truest, we worship fullest, that really, if you can't worship in grief, you never really worshiped. Satan knows that the proof of worship is not how high I can, hand my, high I can raise my hands, how loud I can sing when life is good, but when it's not good. Can I still sing? Satan knows that the test of true worship is not how much I give, but can I give praise to him when life is falling apart? He knows that, that the real test is not joy when the sun is shining or giving God a thumbs up when things are going my way, but do I still have confidence in God when life is going downhill? That's the test. And that's what Satan says. Let's check Job out and see. Because I would venture to say nobody is that way. So uh, everything that you can imagine goes wrong with Job. But look at his response. Verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Now that was a sign of deep humility. We're going to find later on what he does is he covers himself with dust. It's, again, it's a sign from dust I came, dust I'm going. Um, it's a sign of deep, deep humility. Uh, Sorrow. Job is embracing his his pain. Often in Christendom, we think we got to kind of ignore the pain. You know, just put the, the put up, you know suck it up and deal with it kind of thing mentality. You need to know that's never in Scripture anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. God does not hold that. But we think that if if I'm if I'm weak here, if I embrace my pain, if I call it what it is, then somehow that's immaturity, that's weakness. That's not. That's not. At all, and that's not where Job was at. He recognized this is what's going on. His nonverbals here, very, very uh, oriented around grief. Then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, "His words are, are powerful. Naked I came from my mother's womb; naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised." In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Round one, God won Satan zero, right? 
On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the, 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 the Satan, the accuser, also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, exact verbatim from before, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity. Though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Satan replies, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. Uh, God, the last test really didn't count. You put too many restrictions on it. Your God, you know, Job, you know that one piece of him that he values the most, himself. And you guarded that one. No one could touch that one, but strike that. Maybe the guy didn't care so much about his stuff or his family like I thought he might, but himself, oh, everybody takes care of themselves. Strike that. So the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. I mean, obviously, if, if... Job died, the Old Testament thing would be over. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. I mean, how are you walking at this? this is, then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. The itch must have been so incredible. He's sitting in a, the garbage dump uh, with a piece of uh, very filthy, broken pottery, scraping the... Scratching himself. Uh, Horrific looking. When you follow through the rest of the book and you look at what kind of... When Satan gives you a disease, what kind of disease does he give you? This is... There's not a whole lot of things that will match this or that that we have out today that reflect all of these things. Painful itching in 2.8. Disfiguration in 2.12. Purulent sores that scab, crack over, and ooze, 7.5. Sores with worms in them, 7.5. Uh, fever and chills, the same time in 21.1 and 30.30. Eyes red and swollen, 16.16. Diarrhea, 13.27. Stomach pains, 13.27. Sleeplessness, delirium, 7.4. Choking, difficulty swallowing, 7.15. Bad breath, throw that in there, right? Why not? 19.17. Uh, he's emaciated in 19.20. Excruciating pain, 3017. I mean, it's like he takes the, the, the worst of all worlds and kind of throws it in one sickness, one disease, and throws it on Job. Now, this was obviously before there was germ theory going on. Otherwise, he's not sitting in the garbage dump scraping himself with filthy pottery. But there's no antibiotics, right? And there's not a lot of medicine and procedures that can help this level of, of sickness and disease. If you got this far, Job, no, no, you, you don't come back. There was no reason for Job to think anything other than my disease is incurable and my death is inevitable. He's on his way out, and he knows he is. He's dying a very slow, painful death. And what's worse than that, you throw this on there, is that chronic sickness was a sign in the culture of, of divine disfavor. And, so, and so, so on top of everything else, what this means in the culture was in their media and their understanding was that God or the gods were angry with you. 
Uh, this is why, when, remember when Jesus said, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get saved. And it says, after he said this, that his disciples were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed because your riches, obviously it's a sign that you got favor with God. He's blessing you. And somehow through the rich folk were powerful folk. They were people that God blessed, but people who didn't have anything. See, they were the people that God was cursing. So Job, on top of everything else, he's got this going on. Verse 9, his wife, Job's wife, his wife said to him, you know, I think this is interesting, why Satan didn't take the wife? He took all the kids, but didn't take the wife. He left her back. He left her back for a strategic reason, I think. Uh, Now, I've got to cut her some slack, of course. Uh, She just lost all of her wealth as well. Her status, her standing, her servants, her things. Her children, mom, you lose all your kids one day? On top of her husband, you know, she's watching him die. He's, he's, he's going to die, and there's not a lot of Social Security and all their 401ks. That's all gone. He was the only way that she would be secure in this culture, in this society. He was the one who would protect her and take care of her. He's gone. He's gone, getting ready to die. And what has she got going on? So she says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Job, how can you say, bless God, look at you, praise God. Can you praise God when this is going on? Don't you understand? You're under his disfavor. You're under his curse. Look at you. You're dying. Have we lost everything and you're dying? So curse God and die. And again, the thought is that if he curses God, God will strike him down dead and then his pain is over. So in one sense, what she's saying is, in her mind, perhaps humane. I'm watching my husband die painful death slowly. This would just take you out of your pain. You're not coming back. This would just do it. So just curse God and die. Job's reply, though. You're talking like a foolish woman. Not a clueless woman, a foolish woman. Fool in Scripture, you, you know, is someone who just doesn't give God his due, doesn't recognize God. So you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble in all this? Job did not sin in what he said. His worship is uh, in the midst of his grief. Stellar. Matter of fact, from this point on, Satan had lost. We're not going to find Satan anymore. He's not in the book. By the way, you've got to keep in mind that... Uh, from this point on, Satan is not only not mentioned when God tries to explain things. God does not say, you know, Job, there's this thing, and you don't understand this, but see, Satan, see, it was accusing you of stuff. And see, that's, God never blames Satan. Matter of fact, Job, his wife, his friends, uh, he never finds out about what we just read. He, he, he never heard of that. So, we want to worship when we grieve well, let's face it, it's a very difficult time to worship. So how do we get there? How do we do it? Just briefly looking at Job's words here. Give us a picture. Give us an understanding. Because an understanding of God's sovereignty allows us to worship in pain. I would go as far as to say, if you don't understand and embrace the sovereignty of God, you're not able to worship in pain. Not for very long. Look at this. If you've got your Bible, open up. But otherwise, uh, verse 12 of chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, it's their first conversation, Very well then, everything he has is yours. Uh, 
but the, on the man himself do not lay a finger. And in other words, Satan does not have any power over Job unless God says so. Satan's not an equal God. Satan's not just a mean, angry thing that can just decide he's going to go after Job. He can't touch Job. Satan is on, he's making all kinds of noise, but he's on God's leash. And he can only go as far as God would let him go. God's in charge. Nothing comes at, at you or me unless it comes through the hands of a sovereign God. Nothing does. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, I mean, this is a mystery. And, and, and we can't subject God to our ability to rational, rationally understand things. Verse 16. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky. Now, he doesn't say the fire from the devil fell from the sky. Fire of God fell from the sky. It's a natural disaster, a lightning thing of some sort. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed and killed them. I think the only one in Scripture who controls the wind is God. Satan does not control the wind. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell to the ground in worship and said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the devil took away. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Now, maybe he said it wrong, except for verse 22 says, In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In other words, when Job said that God has given and God has has taken away, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying, That's right. What Job said is right. I'm telling you, it'd be a lot easier if it just we could just blame all evil stuff on Satan. Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. Then the Lord said to Satan, verse, chapter 2, verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. Verse 10, Job's talking to his wife and he replies, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not trouble from the Lord? And again, inspired author says in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. One of the hardest verses for me, Exodus 4.11 God's talking to Moses. Moses had excuses on why he couldn't go. I I stutter. I'm not able to speak well, Lord. I can't do this. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I would not take credit for those things. Is it not I, the Lord? It's a chromosome issue here. And God is, is, is claiming his sovereignty. He's not saying there's a good, powerful me, and then there's a Satan, and I just got to watch out for him because he comes around and makes a big old mess and does horrible things, and I, I didn't see it coming, and I got to sneak around and try to fix it and clean it up afterwards. God takes it. Lamentations 3. Listen to this. And this is all over. This is all over Scripture. It says, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? it is, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamity and good things come? The sovereignty of God. We want to wrap it, get it out of Scripture sometimes because it just pr- brings up lots of questions, doesn't it? It's, 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 we struggle 
our mind, trying to get our mind around this thing. It's sovereignty and free will and how's this all this working? But you need to know that far from being that which causes discontent and pain, sovereignty of God is a pillow for the suffering saint to lay his head. Wouldn't life be horrific to think that my life is just spinning out of control and it is just subject to any to Satan or any mean person or accidents or viruses or uh, versus to say, as Job does, the Lord's given, the Lord's taken away. I don't understand this. And that's where a lot of the rest of the book's going to go. I don't understand this. But I know that God's in charge. Though he slay me, Job will say later on, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Because worship is at its best when life is at its, its worst. And so we, we have to have an understanding of God's sovereignty. It doesn't answer all the questions, and it should not. My understanding of God is so much, if I, was, if I could figure out God, I'd be God, right? It's, it, it's, it's not. But we also have to have an understanding of his sovereignty, at least a commitment to it, but also a commitment to his love. If you pick the sovereignty of God, but you don't recognize his love, you know, you know it's, he's going to be a hideous monster. And that's right away kind of where we'll go when we think God is sovereign, but bad things are happening. Hideous monster. We need to understand his love. Lamentations chapter 3. Let me give you the background on this real quick. Because Jerusalem was just sacked. Jeremiah is writing this. And Jerusalem was just sacked. Think of ISIS breaking into a city uh, full of Christians. Kind of, that's... The, the picture, they, they, they raped all the laughing and joking and goofing around. They raped the little girls and the, and the ladies. They, they humiliated the young men just before they murdered them. They, anybody who was still alive, they tracked off to Babylon as a slave. They leave Jeremiah. He watched all this. And so he's writing. Got five laments here. But chapter 3, listen to what Jeremiah says. Godly, I'd say Jeremiah's a pretty godly man. This is some of the most raw, unfiltered text in, in the Bible. Jeremiah says, I, I don't have this on screen, so just listen, or Jeremiah 3. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He, he's talking to God, about God, has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and and my flesh grow old and and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape and he's weighed me down with chains. Even when I call or cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone and he has made my paths crooked like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and he made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me all day long in song. He's filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel and he's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. And so I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. It's depression. 
you saw and experienced all this stuff, that's where you would be as, as well. I like this because Jeremiah is calling this what it is. He's not shying away. Don't worry, everything's fine, everything's okay, everything's good, I'm all right, everything's all right. This is not Jeremiah. He, he, he's wrestling with stuff that we wrestle with. He, he, he can't understand, and it, but he's calling it what it is. He's mourning. And if we just, it's okay to mourn. But if we just stop there, if this ended here, now that would be immaturity, not Spiritual maturity. It's, it's not calling it what it is, but if it ended here, that would be. But it doesn't end here in verse 21. Yet I call this to mind. He says, is there, but there was something that I've learned in the past, something I knew in the past. I just forgot about it because our suffering causes us to forget reality. Sometimes we just focus on the pain, the problem. And Jeremiah goes, I've been focusing there, but then I called something else to mind. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great Love. We're not consumed. We're his compassions. That's his heart. That's his feelings for us. His love is not just some theoretical equation thing. It, feelings never, never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah is, I think, think this is what he's thinking. The promise was for Israel that through Israel the Messiah would come. The whole world would be saved through the Messiah. And he sees the wrath of God because the judgment was huge, come against them. But he realized there's still a remnant saved. There's still hope. The promise still, the Messiah may still come and save the world. We're not all wiped out. The promise is still alive. God in his faithfulness has kept it alive. And, and he would. We know that several hundred years later, you've got Good Friday happening where the Messiah, Jesus, is stretched out on a cross and he dies. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know good. maybe from this perspective, Good Friday was good. But from the people who are at, really at real good, good Friday in real time, Good Friday is not good. It's a bad day. And Saturday's a horrific day. Because those people love God more than anyone else. They're following their Messiah. They're, they're committed to him. But they're so confused. This makes no sense. How can God be in charge? Life is spinning out of control. Everything's going wrong. It looks like our enemies have won. Everything's falling apart. Lots of tears and pain and anguish. Now we know that, that Sunday things are going to change. And Sunday comes, they're going to, Oh, wow. Yeah, they, they, everything would, would come into place. But, but on Friday or Saturday, that's not the case. For you and I, there will be a Sunday. When he returns again, we'll see him face to face. Then we will know as we are known. But until then, we are living on Friday and Saturday. And there's stuff that goes on that, you know, we just don't understand. This does not make sense. It sure looks like he is out of control. Life is falling apart and the bad guys are winning here. How can he be in charge of this? There will be a day when everything comes in place. But we're living Friday and Saturday. To worship in the midst of tears, in the midst of confusion. I don't have the answers. In the midst of pain. To not curse him but to worship him 
recognizing his sovereignty, recognizing that somehow in the midst of all this, he is good. I trust him. My confidence is still in him. We worship best when life is worse. So let me ask you, has something ever happened in your life, maybe recent, maybe a long time back, that, you know, it's still very raw, it's still right there, and at that point, suddenly your faith took a step or two or many back. And the idea of worship, the idea of, of full confidence in God, oh, no, no, no. I, I've, I've been down that road, and I tried that, and boy, that burned me, so I'm not going on that road again. Partial confidence in God. I'll help, well, we'll give God some lip service, but I'm going to take care of myself too, just in case. Has something happened that has eradicated your, your trust, your confidence in him? You need to know, Job. That which destroys our confidence, our faith in God. It's not the situation. It's not the suffering. It's the fact that we've chosen to allow that. What's the song say? It's based here. He gives and he takes away. He gives and he takes away. My heart will choose to say. Lord, blessed be your name. We worship best when the angels look on, when, the, when hell looks on, when life is at its worst. Forget what everyone else thinks or says or what they observe in your own heart. How is your worship in your grief? Will you pray with me? Lord, I can only imagine what it was like to be one of the disciples on Good Friday or Saturday. So much didn't make sense and it didn't, uh, it's just too much hurt and pain and injustice and evil. Lord, would you remind us that you are sovereign? God, you know our limitations, our inability to understand. Would you strengthen our faith? Would you remind us that you love us, God, with a deep love, that your compassions are new? That you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness. Would you remind us that Jeremiah said that when life was falling apart? Would we be in the face the model of Jeremiah, of Job, embrace the pain, recognize it for what it is, but still choose to be faithful to you? I would pray, God, so when our people in our world see that, they, 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 they notice that they would recognize that you're real, that you're powerful, that you, in fact, would get the glory. I would ask that that would be so. God, thank you for giving us that which even you didn't give Job. You've given us a church. You've given us each other, brothers and sisters, to sharpen each other, to encourage each other. And so I, I, I thank you, God, for, for that. May we take full advantage of that through your spirit. But God, I, I would pray too that even as we give back a little now of that which you've given to us to um, take your gospel of your faithfulness, of your greatness across this world and here in Erie, Lord, would you bless that? I would pray that that would be so, God, would, you, would your spirit take our hearts and teach us God, would you teach us that it's not about what we give or don't give to you. It's about our, our faith in you, our confidence in you. And may our, our giving spring from that, I would ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.